So the sermon today, this sermon, the sermon hymn, is entitled, Alone Thou Goest Forth. Now, why are we doing this? This is a series of sermons that Vanessa and Heidi and I are doing, uh, looking at particular sermons, I mean, looking at particular hymns, and what they have to say about the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, and then what that says about how salvation has worked. Why, why would we say the cross is the means of salvation? What does that mean? I mean, think about it. I mean, we're so used to saying it, we almost take it for granted, but when you think about it, uh, for a moment, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. We're looking at hymns because, in addition to the Bible, the principal way in which our theology, how we think about God, what we say about God, is shaped in a very large way by the hymns that we sing because of the power of music. When you combine text and music, it gets to a place of your consciousness, of your heart, that's different than just the text or the word alone. So hymns are powerful, both in the positive sense, but they can also be, I would suggest, powerful in the negative sense. That there are some ideas in some hymns, which when I see them, I go, ooh, right? I think maybe you feel the same way. The one that we're going to sing now is what my grandfather would call an old chestnut, okay? I don't think we've ever sung it here in my 38 years. Um, it's that old. But I want to call your attention, if you look in the uh, insert that we'll be singing from now in just a moment, I want you to look uh, in particularly, uh, particular at verse 2. Our sins, not thine, thou bearest. Our sins, not thine, thou bearest, Lord. Make us thy sorrow feel. Till through our pity and our shame, love answers love's appeal. This idea that Christ has to bear our sins is based on the idea which was thoroughly developed in the 11th century by Anselm, the great theologian of early medieval thought. Anselm uh, believed as most Christians in his day did, and the earliest Christians, and Jesus himself lived in the thought world, that sins had to be satisfied with sacrifice. That one could become atoned with God, made right with God, by offering in the temple at Jerusalem, when it existed, a sin that would satisfy God. And then our relationship would be made right. But Anselm, subscribing as he did, as does most of Western Christianity, um, to the idea of original sin, which I happen to disagree with, but original sin is so massive, it can only be satisfied or atoned for with the perfect sacrifice, that is to say, the one without sin, Jesus. Furthermore, Anselm argues that because the whole world, all of creation, is God's. Everything we have, all that we are, all the world is not ours, it's God's. So we have nothing, Anselm said, we have nothing to sacrifice. We could bring a pig. No, you can't do that to Jerusalem. We could bring a lamb. You didn't get my joke, right, about the pig in Jerusalem? I'm sorry. I try. 
You couldn't bring a lamb because it's not really your lamb. It's God's lamb. Right? And so God has to sacrifice God's self in order to satisfy God. You see here the problems of applying the rules of logic and philosophy to the mystery of a theological idea like the crucifixion. And so Anselm comes up with this idea of substitutionary atonement. Christ is the substitute sacrifice for us for our sin. And therefore, Christ's sacrifice saves us. Okay. Number of problems with this. One is what kind of God is that that has to be satisfied? That someone's got to die for God to be merciful. Really? Because the only time I find God defined in the New Testament is in the letters of John where it says that God is love. So how does love require a sacrifice for the restoration of a relationship? Okay. Secondly, in a sense it almost eliminates our need to take account of our particular relationship with God. That we're passive. We're just recipients rather than active participants in the salvation work of God. So we're going to sing the hymn, Enough of Me Beating My Gums, Alone Thou Goest Forth. If you think the first hymn was new to you, this one's even newer and I would say stranger, the tune. Um, but I want you to pay attention particularly uh, to the second uh, verse. You can remain seated. I would say that the tune was very well matched to the text. 
deep sense of foreboding, of illness, of despair, almost. Now, that's not to say Jesus is unacquainted with illness, foreboding, or despair. He is, just as we are. He has entered into the fullness of our human condition. It seems to me that the crucifixion is nothing if it's not about the fact that God has entered fully into the experience of the depths of human fear and the ravages of human mendacity. And yet God's purposes are not overcome uh, by these forces arrayed against God. In Jesus' uh, last week of his life, he's in Jerusalem. And he's in the temple precincts a lot, and he's teaching. And in the 13th chapter of Luke's gospel, we find an exchange, reflections on current events, that only occurs in Luke's gospel. It doesn't occur in Matthew, Mark, uh, or the other synoptic gospels, or in John's gospel. It's only in Luke. And it has to do with um, what might be called the Deuteronomic worldview. Don't you love it when I use phrases from the uh, seminary? Yeah, I know. Yeah, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, here he goes again. Okay, Deuteronomy is perhaps the place where we find the fullest expression of the idea that there is a system of divine, earthly reward and retribution. Divine, heaven, and earth, you and me, a system of reward and retribution. A reward from heaven or some kind of retribution from heaven is visited upon us or given to us because of what we've done. If we're bad, we come into trouble. And if we're good, whatever that means, we get a reward. And you know what? Most of us think this way, whether we know it or not. It's a little bit like gravity. You don't have to think about gravity for it to work. You don't even have to believe in gravity, and it works. Did you know that? You can deny gravity. You still aren't getting off the planet. So this Deuteronomic worldview of a system of divine reward and punishment, it's reflected, for instance, in the healing stories of Jesus. One, one person was born blind, blind from birth. And so the people say to Jesus, well, whose sins are responsible for his blindness? His parents or the man himself? Because he was born blind, so it must have been his parents, right? I mean, somebody has to be responsible for the fact that he's blind, because that's the scientific, proto-scientific view that they had, that any affliction was a punishment for something that we had done that was against God. And so Jesus is going to reflect on two experiences which might have thought, people might have thought, reflected this worldview. The first one has to do with people from Galilee who had come to, Rome, to Jerusalem in order to sacrifice in the temple. The second one has to do with people um, who were residents of Jerusalem who died in a tragic accident. At that time, there were present some who told Jesus about the Galileans from the north, where Jesus was from, who had come down to Jerusalem, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What? Pilate, the nefarious, evil, truly evil, sociopathic governor of 
Palestine, as the Romans called it, had gone into the temple, the sacred precincts, violated the agreement between the Romans and the Jews, and had massacred these Galileans while they were sacrificing animals. This is a gross violation of every norm of humanity and certainly of the religious norms and requirements. They've defiled the temple. It's terrible. And so he says, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Did this happen to them because they were badder than bad? No, he says, no, no, no. But it does tell you that if you want to repent, time is now. It's a good time to repent. Or about those um, 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell upon them. The Pool of Siloam, there's a tower in the, in the uh, wall around Jerusalem. It fell and it crushed 18 people. <clears throat> Do you think that they were crushed because they are worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, no, I tell you. But you will all perish. We might as well repent now because we're all, you know, the mortality table is still 100%. So they told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found it bare. So he said to the gardener, well, see here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. So cut it down. Why should it be wasting good soil? The gardener replied, well, sir, leave it alone for one more year. Let me dig around it, put some manure on it, and if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. So Jesus rejects this Deuteronomic view that we receive a reward of punishment based on our behavior, whether we're sinners or righteous, which undercuts the whole idea that a perfect sacrifice or any sacrifice has to be made in order to make us right with God. If God is love, as the author of John's epistles say, the only definition of the New Testament of God, if God is love, how does love require a bloody, truly horrific death in order to satisfy God? What kind of God is this? Right? What kind of God re requires abuse of a child to make things right? This is abhorrent, right? It's no, it doesn't provide any kind of moral guidance to us, and in fact, it could be suggested that it's almost a just justification for the abuse of children, which, of course, we reject utterly and outright and without question. So what is it about the sacrifice that works for us, the death that, sac that works for us? Now, Vanessa pointed out rightly in her first sermon, the first thousand years of Christianity, the cross, the crucifix, was really not the central symbol of Christianity. The dove, the descending dove, the ascending Christ made whole, the Garden of Eden before the fall. Go to Ravenna. Jerry and I were there several times over the last years. 
The magnificent churches are crafted during the Byzantine era on the shores of the Adriatic just across uh, from Asia Minor. And the incredible mosaics, which are just as vibrant today as they were when they were crafted a thousand years ago because they're stone and mineral and glass. They don't fade with time. They're luminous as they were they, they were installed. And there's not a crucifixion among them. Because the crucifixion is not about the debasement of humanity. It's about the elevation of humanity in Christ's entering into the fullness of our human condition that there's nothing that can happen to us that's beyond God's personal knowledge. But God is compassionate, which means feels with us, doesn't feel for us. To be compassionate doesn't mean, oh, I'm very sorry, see you tomorrow. To be compassionate means I am very sorry and I will sit down next to you and share in your suffering. I will be with you, not to fix everything, but to bear with you the trials that life brings. Not everything can be fixed. But what is the power of the cross is that when we face the deepest hours, the hours of the shadows, we are not alone. Remember, the shadows are created by light that has been blocked by an intervening presence. But the light still shines even in the shadows. We are simply kept from seeing it, but it is still there calling us into the future. Okay. So the cross is the perfect example, it seems to me, of what it means to say that God is saving us. And it's this. That God is reaching out to us in love in every circumstance. God is aware of us in every moment and reality of our lives and wants nothing more to live in a loving relationship with us. To be saved is to live in the conscious understanding that you are beloved of God, that God loves you. Warts and all. To be saved is to live in the conscious understanding, the conscious awareness that you are the object of God's love, just as you are. Now that love is transformative. It calls us to a different way of being. It calls us, the Bible would say, to righteousness. Here's where Anselm got it wrong. I'm, you know, remarkably uh, arrogant to suggest that Anselm was wrong. But I'm going to retire soon, so what are you going to do? <laughs> what, are you going to call in the cops? Okay. So... Um, Anselm was uh, addicted to the idea, not addicted, it's a little strong, 
Um, he was convinced of the idea that if we were righteous, God would love us. That's really, I think that when you boil it all down, if we are righteous, God will love us. That's not how it works. It just isn't. Read the Gospels, for heaven's sakes. I want to say to Anselm, have you read the Gospels? Here's how it works. God loves you, and when you become aware of that fact, you become righteous. You reciprocate God's love by living as a loving person. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? This is very simple. I don't know the chicken or the egg one, but this is very simple. God's love comes before our love. Our loving is a response to God's loving us. And that love is demonstrated to us in that God is willing to share, to be compassionate with, to live the life that we live, even experiencing the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, the abandonment by the disciples, the mendacity of the Romans, the corruption of the authorities who are complicit with an evil and violent regime which is crushing the people. He was willing to put up with all of that to show us that this is the extent to which God is loving us in every circumstance which frees us from the need to try to control and fix everything so that we can love in the way that God loves. Go to Ravenna. Go see the mosaics in those magnificent churches. And hear the echoes of the great vision of the poet, prophet Isaiah. The early Christians couldn't make head nor tail sense out of the crucifixion, the death and resurrection of Jesus without reference to the book of the prophet Isaiah. It was through the lens of Isaiah that the early church came, came to terms with, understood the, the, the mystery, the power of the whole event, the phenomenon of Jesus. Isaiah 55. Ho! That's how it begins. I'm not just making that up. It's right there in black and white. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, eat. Come, wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which will never satisfy? Listen to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David, that the nations will come to you, nations you do not know, and nations that do not know you will come to the Holy One of Israel. Seek the Lord while God may be found. Call upon God while God is near. Return to the Lord who will have mercy upon you, our God who will abundantly pardon. Your thoughts are not God's thoughts. Our ways are not God's ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than ours, God's thoughts than our thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and turn, return not there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
So my word will be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall be in this reciprocating cycle to accomplish all that I purpose, succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. Go out in joy. Be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar, the myrtle. And it shall be to the Lord for a memorial, for an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. The clapping trees of the fields of Isaiah's vision, the falling towers of Siloam, the falling towers of Ukraine, Talk about human mendacity doing its worst. Calling us, as Jesus said, to waste no time, repent. We know not if we have tomorrow. To recreate the world in keeping with God's vision. The clapping hands, the falling towers, the love of God for you for now and for always. Amen.